This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Recently, I had the honor of chatting with Stephen Mansfield. My name is Stephen Mansfield. Uh, I head an organization called the Mansfield Group. About his book, Choosing Donald Trump, God, Anger, Hope, and Why Religious Conservatives Supported Him. He's also the author of The Faith of George W. Bush and The Faith of Barack Obama. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce. So uh, first of all, why did you dedicate your book to millennials? Well, it's a great question. I spend a lot of time with millennials, even though I'm in my 50s. I'm on college campuses a lot. I have millennials on my staff, et cetera. And I, I, you know, they're often depicted as snowflakes and spoiled and what have you. But uh, I find their sense of social justice to be inspiring. I think that they are grappling with the important issues of our society, uh, even though they're not fully in power yet, you know, uh, in terms of socioeconomic and political power. And uh, I, I, I admire them and think they're going to help us a lot in our country and in the Western world. So I wanted to encourage them a bit by dedicating the book to them. Plus, by the way, I know that they're, they've been traumatized by the 2016 election, and I, I don't want to see them disheartened. And uh, what made you want to write this book, Choosing Donald Trump? Well, you know, I had done the, the, the book on George W. Bush called The Faith of George W. Bush. I'd also done the same kind of treatment on Obama, two very different men religiously. Uh, but I didn't want to do the same kind of book on Trump because— uh, I don't think he has a defining faith like the other two. Um, instead, I think what faith he's come to is relatively recent, even though he's been shaped by uh, a long-term theological message coming out of Norman Vincent Peale. I'm sure we'll talk about that. So uh, I wanted to write the book to identify the religious issues around the 2016 election, but also take a stab at telling Donald Trump's rather unusual spiritual biography. Um, despite the fact that I didn't want to do the, do the entire book on that theme. So uh, it was an attempt to explain the election, explain him, but not do the same kind of treatment that I had done with the other two presidents. How did Norman Vincent Peale's method of preaching and his style impact Donald Trump? Well, he was raised in the church. Uh, he, when, he was, when he first came into the world, his family was attending a Presbyterian church in New York. Uh, over time, they became enamored with Norman Vincent Peale, the very famous uh, clergyman and motivational teacher, and uh, so they began attending his church, Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan, and they developed a very close relationship with him. He became sort of the family chaplain and not only their pastor, but also the chaplain to the companies and chaplain to the family. He would dedicate the buildings, do the weddings, do the funerals, etc. So uh, he was very much shaped by the life and ministry of, of Norman Vincent Peale. And uh, so in a sense, he spent his whole life uh, being shaped by sort of a Christian religious motivational influence. Um, but I think it really has uh, been recently that he's been surrounded by some evangelicals who like him and want to help him, and they've begun to press him about the claims of his own Christianity, maybe in a more substantive way. So uh, he's definitely a work in progress. He's definitely a mixture, as we all know. Um, but it's not as though he's come to a Christian faith or any kind of Christian influence recently. Um, he's basically been churched his whole life, but um, he absorbed more the motivational side of Norman Vincent Peale's teaching as opposed to the uh, you know, transformation, transformational message of Christianity. Norman Vincent Peale basically had two streams coming out of his life and ministry. One was the more traditional Christian gospel, you know, live for Jesus, transformation in him, walk humbly with your God kind of theme. That was definitely there in, in Norman Vincent Peale's church life. But in Norman Vincent Peale as a motivational speaker, 
He wrote the, the very, very popular book called The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, he was a guy who believed that you were made to be a success and to win and, uh, you know, that your attitudes, your words, your actions could change your reality, et cetera. Themes we're very familiar with now, but they were new when Norman Vincent Peale first wrote the book and began to bring that emphasis. So I, as I, the way I like to say it is that Donald Trump drank from the one stream and not so much the other. His version of Christianity was um, more the Norman Vincent Peale, uh, sort of Norman Vincent Peale giving him footnotes for his, his belief that he should win, that he should conquer, that he should achieve, that he should be a success. So even though Donald Trump was sitting in church, he wasn't hearing a humble yourself, walk with God, serve others message. He was hearing a here's how you can win, here's how you can conquer, here's how you can achieve kind of message coming from Norman Vincent Peale. And again, that, that has been Christianity for Donald Trump during most of, most of his life. I think, I think he's being challenged differently now, but, uh, but I think that's why we have a guy who, on the one hand, says he's a Christian and talks about reading the Bible a lot, and on the other hand, whose life is very much at odds with what we all understand to be the, the, the fundamental message of Jesus Christ. Right, even to the point of when he was asked, uh, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? He said no. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's the mystery of Donald Trump. That's why he can have been in church for, you know, off and on for 70 years. And, and yet, you know, the, the, the famous humorous moment was during the campaign when he was sitting in a Presbyterian church in Iowa and the communion tray came by and he started putting money in it. Um, he, he's so, so inexperienced, so non-reflective, he wasn't even sure what the difference was between, a, you know, the communion tray at a church and the, and the offering. Um, it's also why he says he reads the Bible more than anybody else, but couldn't couldn't really name a, a favorite scripture. And when he did, he said it was the scripture an eye for an eye, <laughs> which you know I can't think of anybody who really thinks that's their favorite scripture. So uh, it's why, on the one hand, he's been in church almost since day one, but he's so amazingly clumsy when it comes to talking about his faith. And uh, people often say, "Well, man, he's got to be a complete hypocrite." Well, no, but I, I think he's simply absorbed the motivational side of his Christian experience and not the traditional gospel side. And, and it's, it's why on, you know, he can extol religious liberty one minute and then pick a fight with somebody viciously or call NFL players SOBs the next minute. It's just, just, it's just who he is and what his religious influences have left him with. And so from Norman Vincent Peale, he then transitioned on to Paula White. And how has she shaped his faith experience and his connection to Christianity? Well, Paula White, very well-known television preacher, uh, pastor of a church, co-pastor of a church down in Florida, um, has certainly had her own bruises and woundings. She's been through a divorce and was sexually abused as a child. Donald Trump really related to a, a series on vision he saw her giving on television, called her, uh, invited her to come up and visit with he and his wife, and um, Paula White sort of became the, the chaplain to his company. Um, Paula White comes sort of a, from more from the charismatic Pentecostal side of Christianity, uh, very demonstrative, very emotional. Um, and the, 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 the real strength, I think, is that he related to her because she did have sort of a motivational side to her message. She did talk about vision. She did talk. He did. She does preach about success and things like that. And these are themes that Donald Trump really relates to. What, what I think is most important about Paula White uh, is that when Donald Trump decided to run for president, 2015 to 2016, he turned to Paula White and asked her to put together some listening sessions for him, meetings with prominent clergy around the country. And uh, he wanted to know what they were dealing with, wanted to win them over. And to her credit, Paula White, again, though she comes from the Pentecostal charismatic side of things, she very much uh, began to reach across denominational lines. She invited Catholic bishops, she invited Orthodox priests. She invited a rabbi or two. She invited even a, even a, a mullah, an Islamic mullah, 
uh, or two to these meetings. And here is where Trump really began to get an education. He began to learn about religious liberty issues. He began to learn about what it was like to pastor a church in an inner city in America. He also began to learn about things like the, the, the Johnson Amendment that he talks about so much and so on. So after, after that moment, after those meetings, he was able at least to talk in the language of the religious right and of religious Americans, uh, even if you know some, some cynics would say, well, he, he doesn't really absorb that message, doesn't really believe it. At least he was able to sound those tones in the campaign. And, uh, and I, so I think that a lot of his victory in 2016 is due to Paula White's creating those listening sessions. And uh, you speak in the book, uh, there being sort of a transactional relationship between a lot of Christian leaders and Donald Trump. Uh, so we uh, Christians can kind of help him get elected, but then what is it that Christians are getting out of that in return? Well, that's that's the big question that we we can't quite answer yet. I mean, there's no question that if you go back to 2016 and the election, uh, that most religious conservatives in America felt traumatized by the Obama years and you know pretty terrified of the Hillary Clinton presidency from a religious perspective. Um, it's the surveys just show this. They felt like Obama was. Uh, you know, bombarding their faith, uh, you know, lawsuits as Justice Department going after the Green family of Hobby Lobby for not wanting to include abortifacients in their medical in, uh, in coverage for their insurance cover for their employees, and even at one point prosecuting against a small order of nuns, things of this nature. Um, and, and so, you know, the, if you go scan the internet, look for war on religion, you're going to find that right next to Barack Obama's name. That's, that's how the religious right, that's how conservative uh, religious conservative thought. So I think what's what, what's important uh, is to understand that most evangelicals, most conservative religious conservatives, don't think that Donald Trump's the ideal Christian at all, but they did think that he could win. They did think he could beat Hillary. And he seemed to make at least a head fake towards a lot of things they believed in. Now, there's been a certain amount of buyer's remorse since the election. Surveys showed that there's been, oh, about a 10 to 15 percent loss of support among evangelicals, a lot of it having to do with his language and picking fights on Twitter and things like that. But I think fundamentally, there was an article in the Washington Post not too long ago that asked the question, you know, is there anything that Trump could do that would lose evangelical support? And a lot of the prominent evangelicals who were interviewed said, well, Trump gives us access that no other president's given us. And so I think you do have a tra transactional thing happening. I think Trump is giving them access. Trump is supporting some of their values. Trump is putting people uh, on the Supreme Court they agree with, and and uh, and so they're they're providing support. I think there's going to be some blowback. I think there's going to be some damage from this. Uh, we already know that that as we discussed at the top of our time together, you know, millennials very traumatized by that election. I know a lot of young uh, evangelical millennials who are leaving their churches because they can't believe their church is so stridently pro-Trump. Um, you've got a lot of evangelicals of color who are upset with their white evangelical friends, saying, "Hey, I guess it didn't matter to you." Uh, that Trump was ha was comfortable in a racist environment, et cetera. So I, I think you're you're still you know I think the jury's still out on exactly what the evangelical supporters of Donald Trump are going to get from him. But so far, although there's been a little bit of drop off, they seem to be getting what they bargained for, and they're not necessarily deceived in thinking that he's the ideal Christian. One of the more interesting parts of the book, I thought, was the discussion of how Trump isn't so much an outsider, but one of us, a reflection of our culture. Can you expand on that idea a little bit? Yes. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You know, one of the things I wanted to answer as I did research for the book was uh, why did people feel so akin to Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump has was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, as they say, um, wealthy, uh, incredibly wealthy, stunningly wealthy every single day of his entire life, privileged, upscale, 
Um, and yet, uh, common blue collar Americans, you know, I live in the South, so I can say it, Bubba Americans felt very, very much kinship with him. Well, a lot of it is because uh, the way he lived, the way he talked was like the way they are around their own breakfast table. You know, so he cusses. Okay, well, most Americans report cussing, as the surveys show. Uh, and he has some racist attitudes. Well, most Americans will talk in more racially offensive terms, you know, privately at the bar or around their breakfast table than they, uh, than they would publicly. Um, he's, he's, he's divorced. Well, most Americans have made peace with divorce. That's just what the trends have done. I could go on and on. So everything that an evangelical might point to or, or a conservative, real religious conservative might point to uh, that is, you know, theoretically offensive about Donald Trump or that is, you know, shows that he's less than the example of Jesus is exactly where most Americans are. Um, so his anger over economic issues, his cussing, his divorces, his racial attitudes, um, that was not that offensive to a large segment of American society because that's who they are uh, in private. That's who they are behind the scenes. They may not talk that way at church. They may not talk that way in public, but they will talk that way over their breakfast table or you know, over drinks with some friends. And they felt a commonality with Donald Trump. And I think it's, you know, for better or for worse, it's one of his gifts. He can, he can make the doorman at the hotel he owns in New York feel like he's with him um, because he's just as blue and off color and raw as the doorman is. Uh, even though Donald Trump is this very wealthy businessman whose feet rarely touch the ground, so to speak. You know, he's always in a jet or a limo or, you know, being carried around by his staff. So uh, this is one of the conundrums of Donald Trump. He, he once said, I'm your voice. Um, and I believe that, 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 that means that really is true. And it's even truer than he may have meant in the sense that he is giving voice to a lot of Americans who just haven't had somebody as raw, as unscripted, as angry, and as flawed as he is on the public state, on the public stage. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, of course, uh, President Trump has this Faith Advisory Council uh, advising him you also you mentioned some uh, a relationship between Billy Graham and previous presidents. What are things that maybe this current uh, faith advisory council could learn from Billy Graham's experience? Well, Billy Graham, of course, you know, will probably lose him in the next year or two. Uh, he's getting much older and unhealthy. But he was uh, arguably the most famous evangelist in the world. But he was also a friend of presidents ever since the Truman administration. He was a regular in the White House. Well. In his later years, he began looking back at his relationship with some of the presidents and saying, you know, I think I got used. Uh, he was particularly talking about Richard Nixon. He said, I would meet with Richard Nixon and he would talk about religion, but he was really talking more in sentimental terms. He would talk about his mother's Bible or, uh, you know, you know the, the, the faith that his family shared when he was growing up. But, but then 
uh, Billy Graham heard the the White House tapes, you know, the Watergate tapes, and heard Nixon being, you know, cynical and harsh and cussing and crass and unchristian in every way. And Billy Graham came came to conclude that he really got played. And his concern was that as the more there was a marriage between the religious right and the political right, that that many clergy people would would be played, that they would be manipulated. And so his counsel, I think, to the current uh, Council of Evangelical Advisors around Donald Trump would be, you know, speak your truth, speak boldly, but don't don't make it transactional. Don't 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 uh, don't make it about, you know, we'll support you in exchange for something else. Speak God's truth. Keep your distance. Help them as you can spiritually. Hold up a moral grid. Remind the powerful of the poor and social justice and racial issues and, and, and moral truth. But 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 don't get in bed with them, so to speak. Don't don't jump on their team. Don't become part of their PR team. And I think that Billy Graham's experience is a very good one for those of us who are are Christians, but or religious of any stripe, um, and are in the lives of the politically powerful. I, I think Billy Graham would say, "You can be played. You can be manipulated." And many times, that's exactly why the politician, the powerful person, has given you access in the first place. So be careful. And tied into that was the notion of prophetic distance. Uh, what is prophetic distance and why is it important? Well, prophetic distance is uh, a phrase we use to describe the idea that you, you, you have to maintain a certain amount of distance, a certain amount of um, uh, oh, lack of involvement. I don't want to say it as though it's a cold thing, but, but, but a certain amount of removal from the political process. In other words, um, if I'm asked to, let, let's say I'm asked to speak to the next president and I'm, I'm their, their spiritual counselor, well, I, I, I can't be about promoting their career. I can't be about helping them with their PR problems. I can't be about helping to rebrand them for the American people. I have to be able to speak truth to them but not want anything from him or her. I, I, in other words, I, I need to be able to speak truth, uh, help them spiritually, help their family if I can, be a chaplain, be a pastor if that's what I, I'm called upon to do, um, speak uh, religious truth, uh, eternal truth to the political process or to their political decisions. But, but, but I can't be bought off, allow myself to be bought off by prominence or position on a stage or, uh, or by anything that, um, you know, that, that would be sort of transactional. I have to be clean. I have to be free from uh, agenda. I have to, I have to, that's what we mean by uh, maintaining uh, prophetic distance is that you speak your truth, but you're free of an agenda. You're, you're not, you're not, you can't be bought off. You can't be uh, manipulated. And, um, and that's where people are, people who speak truth do best when they, when they're not looking for position, they're not looking for power. They're not looking to be on stage. They're not looking to be invited to a white house dinner. They just simply want to do the will of God as they, uh, have access in that person's life. And that's again, prophetic distance, a distance from, uh, the give and take, uh, and, and manipulations of politics. Do you think with our current faith advisory council that that distance exists? I don't think it exists to the extent that it ought to. Some of the people on that advisory council really misbehaved, I think, during the 2016 uh, election. Um, you know, we began hearing this this religious rebranding of Trump. You know, he's Churchill, he's Lincoln, he's Darius the Great. I heard him compared to Jesus in one introduction. I mean, it got ridiculous. And so I think that some of these people who are on his council, you know, are in that transactional mode, are in a, you know, we'll... We'll, we'll, we'll be on your council and make you look good. You give us access we wouldn't have had otherwise. But I don't think that's the best. Now, I'm not saying all of them are that way, but some of them definitely are because that's how they behave during the election. Um, but there are some there who are 
who are there uh, maintaining an appropriate distance. They don't want anything politically. They're just there to serve God and, and speak his truth. And I think that's that's a valid thing. And almost every president has had that. Obama had it. Bush had it. I mean, that's 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 what you want. You want good clergy people around them uh, who, who are clean and don't, and don't have an agenda, uh, but simply want to remind um, the, the person in power of higher values. And I think there are people like that on the current evangelical council. And then, of course, there are some who concern me because of the way they behaved in the during the election. In the long term, what effect do you think our association with Donald Trump is going to have on our witness? How is it going to impact our ability to share the gospel? Well, I, I think that in order for us to share the gospel, we're going to have to distinguish ourselves from kind of a political Christianity, um, from kind of a, you know, I believe in God, but I can do whatever I want with power, or I believe in God, but but uh, and I believe in Christian truth, but I, I don't, I'm not, not submitting to the claims of the gospel. We're going to have to clean it up a little bit. We're going to have to uh, have a purer kind of witness and be willing to have the courage to say, you know, Donald Trump may say he's a Christian, but he's not a great exemplar of the Christian faith. Um, so I, I think that, that unfortunately, in our current generation, a lot of what the way we define ourselves in, in public view is by saying what we are not aligned with. Um, and so uh, you want to say it positively, you want to say it negatively. And so, you know, I'm I'm more Christian than I am a political conservative. I'm I'm I can pray for Donald Trump every day, and I do because he's a president of my country. Um, but I can also decry racist attitudes in the administration, or you know, I help chaplain an NFL team, and so some of the guys who are kneeling during the national anthem are my friends, and they're they're good people, and they're Christians, and they're patriots. Um, but they're but they 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 shouldn't be called SOBs by their president. So. So when I when I speak when I talk to people I say well this isn't this isn't Christian statesmanship this is not what should have happened um, this is this is an area where Donald Trump's life does not align with the best of the Christianity he claims and so we have to be we have to be bold to distinguish ourselves from the negative examples that are on the public stage whether it's about sex abuse whether it's about racism uh, whatever it is uh, because we live in a highly media world a lot of our witness has to be distinguishing ourselves from the prevailing view of what a Christian is out there. And that and that's an exciting challenge, but it means we've got to be informed and we've got to be clear and we've got to have courage to distinguish ourselves from the maddening crowd, as they say. Right. As I share the gospel, I have a, a young man that I'm sharing the gospel with regularly. We meet every week. Um, I find that I'm often trying to undo the things that he's heard about in the news about what Christians are doing, uh, racial slurs, anything with Donald Trump. Um, and it's definitely... S slowed down my ability to share the gospel with my friend. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's because, like, I, I have people I meet with regularly, and I also work a lot in the Muslim world, and many of my Muslim friends will say, Stephen, why do you Christians do so-and-so? Why did you invade here? Why did you do that? And I'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What makes you think I'm part of those people, or, or, that, or that that's Christianity? And they'll say, well, Donald Trump, he's a Christian. And in other words, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're painting us with a broad brush. Or I'll meet like you do with somebody regularly who's, who's sort of approaching Christianity, and they'll say, well, why do you Christians do so-and-so? I'll say, hey, hang on. <laughs> the last time you and I met over a hamburger, you didn't think that. Where'd that come from? Well, I was watching something on, on you know, I was listening to something on NPR or I saw something on the news. So you're constantly having to interact with uh, what's going on in our society. Well, this is both an opportunity and a challenge. Uh, it means we've got to be informed, means we've got to distinguish ourselves, means we've got to be articulate, we've got to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. But you know, it's not like you've just parachuted into some untouched land, untouched by media or previous religions, and you can define yourself positively by saying what you believe. No, 
you'll end up having to define yourself a lot by distinguishing yourself from what's already out there. People ask me all the time, would you be part of Black Lives Matter? Would, would, would you, you know, how, would, would you have covered up sexual abuse in, in the pastorate? Would you have, you know, they're always bringing the news to me and asking me to define myself as a Christian in light of that. And that's just the way it's going to be from now on. So we're going to have to be sharp and up to our game. Right. I've been trying to focus mostly on uh, the Gospels. So I'm, I'm taking these people I'm mentoring back to, this is what Jesus actually said. He didn't tell us to you know, conquer nations and drill for oil wherever we can. He, you know, told us to love people. Exactly. Um, and it, in some ways, the contrast is is good because it makes it a sharper, uh, a sharper contrast between what the world wants and what Jesus tells us to do. Well, it also, you're exactly right. It also means we have to know our Bibles. For example, when, I, when I'm asked about racial things, I say, look, I serve a God who can put his throne anywhere he wants to. But the Bible tells us that he puts his throne in the middle of the worship of people from every tribe and tongue and language and, and people group. Um, in other words, he loves the nations. He created the nations. He loves ethnicity. He loves skin colors. He loves diversity of that kind. And, he, and, he, and surrounding his throne are those voices of praise and worship. So I start there. And if, and if we've got a president who's a racist or we've got somebody engaging in racially bigoted policies in Washington, D.C., that that person's contrary to the gospel. But you've got to know your Bible so that you can make that case. I think what we're doing is we're having to come home to the radical nature of, of the gospel and, and, uh, and, and, move, and separating ourselves from where people have done immorality and then claim God's blessing upon it. Um, and, you know, I love my country, but I'm not deceived that this is a Christian country. It's a pagan country with a lot of Christian people in it. And therefore, we've got to constantly distinguish. We've got to constantly separate between righteousness and wickedness. That was my talk with Stephen Mansfield. For more information about him, people can keep up with me at stephenmansfield.tv and on Twitter at, at @mansfieldwrites w r i t e s at @mansfieldwrites Truce is a listener supported podcast find out how to help us and get more information about my novel Cradle Robber and my film Bringing Up Bobby at trucepodcast.com tell us what you think about the show on Twitter and on Facebook at, at @trucepodcast there are more episodes headed your way in the future so subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and be sure to leave us a review while you're there it really makes a difference. And tell your friends, every little bit helps. <laughs>